This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. This evening, we speak to the founder of Dev Diner and Emerging Technology Officiano, Patrick Catanzariti. I'm working on this for later in the show, Patrick. It's going to be smooth by the time we get to that again. Look, we're bite into it. We're Dan Salmon. Hello. Laura Summers. Hey there. And Vanessa DeHolka. And we do thank you for joining us this evening. In news this week, Australia has something on the cybersecurity front. Laura, what's going on? Well, that's a great question that I don't think we really have a clear answer to yet. <laughs> um, Julie Bishop, Bishop, rather, I'm joining you in mispronouncing people's <laughs> names, has, has come out and done a little bit of chest beating. Um, there has been the release of an international cyber engagement strategy by DFAT, um, and they have alluded to weapons and offensive strategies, and we mean that in the meaning of taking offense as opposed to being offensive. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, And I'm not quite sure exactly what this means, but as far as I can tell, I suspect it's something around the lines of um, police action against individuals and maybe things like economic sanctions against countries or some other kind of diplomatic um, lever. So attempting to try and prevent people from any kind of cyber crime, cyber hacking. Um, She did refer specifically to the Russian interference in the American election. And I think um, that's probably the first time I've ever felt really aligned with her ideology. (laughs) But yes, absolutely. Like for sure, we should not be allowing um, cyber criminals from any country to be able to uh, affect the flow of information in Australia and conversely Australian cyber criminals should not be allowed to affect the flow of data in other countries. That's a really interesting example though because mm. I'm not sure that some of what the the Russians are accused of doing was necessarily illegal in any way. Lots of it was about um, using using bots and amplifying posts and Really, well, I mean, it's it's some mainstream marketing techniques. Good old, good old marketing ad buy, right? Like a lot of what they did was actually just buying ads and and like basically um, amping up the uh, the like sp- scope of, of the, all of these articles and these things that were spreading misinformation. Um, yeah, I agree that it's an interesting example, but I think it's. Um, I think it's funny that she kind of places herself on the anti-Trump side. Let's just put it that way. I thought it was an interesting um, thing for her to bring up. But look, I think that there's a, this this whole statement in the public has raised more questions than it's answered for me. Like, what exactly are they going to do and to whom and when? She did say that we will continue to um, abide by domestic and international law. So one assumes that it doesn't mean that they're creating any loopholes for themselves in the, in the back. But um, exactly what this means, I guess we will have to wait and see. Yes, we'll have to wait till 50 years after everything's happened and they release the files and what happened. And and that's to be expected in areas of national security. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is a really yeah. interesting time for... The, to, to be specific, like the things that they're saying are like, this includes mechanisms to respond to unacceptable behaviour in cyberspace in a timely and agile manner within the existing framework of international law. So it sounds like they'll be lobbying Twitter to make improvements to their harassment policies and how to deal with that. I would love to think that was the case. <laughs> yeah, how optimistic are we? Mm. Not that optimistic. Dan, Dan, what's been going on in the world of Google? Ah, uh, Google, the the global megalith, monolith that is Google, um, have uh, made a big uh, change in the way that you are going to be able to find uh, news articles. Now, uh, for those of us out there who are able to or who have 
previously used the Google search to find, to get behind paywalls. Uh, that is known as Google's uh, controversial first-click free policy. Now, the way that that works basically is that... Um, if you are searching for, if you're looking to get into a media company that has a paywall set up or some kind of restriction, uh, Google had the ability for you to search for the article and then actually enter in behind the paywall via that uh, particular link on the Google search results. They are, are disabling that. Um, so there's been yeah, a lot of lobbying from media companies for a long time to get rid of that. Yeah. So and mm. and look, a lot of a lot of politics between media companies and Google. So uh, it's always been uh, able to be switched off at the at the uh, media company end. Uh, the uh, News Corp actually switched it off um, for the Wall Street Journal earlier this year, and they experienced a 38 percent reduction in traffic from Google search. So up until this point, a lot of media companies have really been just accepting the 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 uh, I suppose the rod that Google have yeah. been whipping them with. I guess the discoverability was worth it for a- them. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but but it's interesting to see that if they're going to be now that they're switching this off, um, how I suppose the uh, reading patterns of people who, um, you know, those of us who find most of our uh, information online now, particularly from the larger media corporations that are able to uh, sustain to mm-hmm. s- sustain a paywall, um, it's going to be a very interesting few months, I think. It raises a question for me also, which is a lot of the reason Google was sort of arguing that this had to be the case was that they couldn't properly index content that was behind a paywall. So now for me, the question is, was that actually not true? And they were just kind of like using it, like, you know, if they're using it as a way to lobby for more free content, like good on them, right? Like I've got no problem with that, honestly. Um, But I am curious, like, what does that actually mean for the indexability of the internet? Like, does it actually mean that there will be little dark enclaves that just search engines in general won't really have much visibility into or is it is it more up to the publisher to make certain things available and then does that mean that the algorithms will have enough information to rank things properly so I, I do have just basic questions about like what this means for Google search algorithm in general I guess this has always mm. been the case there's always been private subscription based data and mm. usually it's it's expensive business information that people had a great case to get people to pay for and it was businesses that that um, access that information so I, I wonder if we're going to see a further you know balkanization of the web they always used to talk about that in the early days in the mm. in the 90s yeah the indie web versus the big silos right mm. Mm. Yeah, we'll see. I guess time will tell. Well, I mean, and, and I mean, Google is is kind of it's a it's an olive branch to the media companies that they mm. have largely been at at odds with uh, around this issue. And uh, you know, it's it's uh, they they're working to make subscribing to publishers easier through single click sign ups through Android and Google services. I did see that. Yeah, yeah. and and as well as um, providing access to the content through their own kind of proprietary newsstands mm. and Google searches that kind of thing. So um, you know, maybe, maybe collaboration is actually going to work this time. Who knows? Mm. Certainly we don't want to see the like death of good journalism. Absolutely not. So hopefully this will help. We can only hope. We can only hope. Um, Well, I don't think this is about good journalism, but it is about power and structure on the internet. Um, There's some interesting things happening over at Uber with this SoftBank investment bid happening. Um, And if you haven't heard of them, SoftBank is this huge venture capital firm from Japan. And I think they've got around the like $100 billion mark of um, capital to play with. So they've been writing a lot of big checks recently. Um, And they are trying to purchase a big chunk of Uber. Um, And it's, it's, 
it's an interesting play for them. I think that Uber obviously has been very controversial in the recent sort of couple of quarters. And there's also been a lot of controversy around the outgoing CEO, Travis, um, what we'll say this right, but Travis Kalanick, I think. Um, Close enough. Close enough. Don't respect him enough to do that. Well, yes. Okay. (laughs) But we'll just put him to the side. (laughs) Um, But the point being, like, he's remained as a board member, right? And he still has quite a lot of power. And he also has, like, that early, early, um, early sort of onboarding into the company power. So he, I think he still has a lot of employees behind him as well, to be honest. Um, so apparently what a lot of this um, like investment in the company is going to achieve is adding more board members and trying to take some of the power away from um, Travis and also taking some of the power away from like the top executive levels and spreading it out a little bit more distributed in a bit more distributed way. Um, and as you can imagine, the early employees are probably pretty pissed off about this because anything that like, you know, spreads, spreads the power amongst the board members more and also like, you know, dilutes the value of their shares is not going to make them terribly happy. And it sounds like they're looking at putting around $10 billion towards buying up existing shares to try and like get some leverage. So it's a a pretty big play. Mm. Um, There's a really great article on Recode if you read them there. That's the- um, the Kara Swisher. Kara Swisher, thank you. She's amazing. She's the best. Mm. Um, So if you want to read more about it, um, I would check that out as well as TechCrunch and a bunch of other people reporting on this. But yeah, look, I've been keeping a close eye on this one and I'll be curious to see whether it actually goes through. I think it's definitely the sort of thing that Uber needs to do is to like get serious about like holding themselves to account and finding a power structure that allows that to happen. Um, but yes, I, I think um, actually I believe it's supposed to either go off or not go off by Wednesday noon, like in the U.S. So we should be finding out in a couple hours if it's if it's happening or not. Mm. Last Thursday was the UN's Access to Information Day and the University of Melbourne put out a really interesting piece reflecting on this moment and the importance of promoting accessible information so that everyone, including those with a disability, can make informed decisions about our lives. It's, um, it's a great piece. It's worth looking up. It's information accessibility and the right to know. And it gave us a few facts about our information use, including that in 2013, the ABS estimated that over 7 million Australians were really limited in their literacy to the most basic of everyday reading tasks. Um, this has really serious implications for the ability to understand um, people's interactions, say, with government services and with all sorts of, you know, utilities and things that facilitate our everyday lives. So, Financial services is another one. Absolutely. Um, so they've actually put a few best practices out there about using the right language, you know, plain language, um, active language, uh, writing numbers as digits, not words. And then they also talk about accessible formats and what might make something more accessible, you know, going to the details of font sizes, font font styles. Um, I did find it funny that this article is written in a serif font and they're saying <laughs> that it should be written. Sans serif is the more accessible format. Yes, so, you know. apparently the accessibility article isn't actually for people with the highest accessibility needs. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, but they've got they've got um, thoughts about images for comprehension and what helps and what doesn't, um, what people can do to make things accessible. But importantly, I think talking about the the importance of accessibility for um, social equity, I think it's a it's a good reminder that there are really big implications to some of the design decisions that we make. Um, so yeah, and, and there's a good call out. And there are some fantastic resources out there to help 
make sure that the accessibility uh, of the sites that you create on, and any of the content that you create is that is, um, is is as good as possible. Vision Australia have some fantastic mm. resources which are freely accessible through their website um, to particularly with people with uh, reading and vision issues um, and also uh, any, anyone who has uh, any kind of accessibility with regards to mobility and using the technology. They have um, some great tips tips there as well. So it's probably mm. worth, you know, if you are in that space, uh, heading to the, uh, if you haven't already, head to the Vision Australia website and check out some of their stuff. There's also some plugins you can get for browsers like Chrome that will show you things like different kinds of color blindness and color contrast and sort of give you some basic ideas of whether you've got any sort of dark areas or areas of problem, um, problem like for people who have visual, visual impairment. Um, but yeah, as you say, like the tooling has gotten so much better in the last couple of years. Thanks a lot in part to people who have been doing this kind of accessibility championship. So It's funny that you mentioned Chrome extensions because I think a lot of people who work in business environments have IT departments that lock down the ability to add any Chrome extensions. And it's a frustration of mine when I can't get to some of the tools that would be really helpful. And you, of course, you know, there's ways to get around that. You write a business case and what have you. But uh, it would be, yeah, it's an interesting little power that um, that our IT, our beloved IT sysadmins can wield. And it'd be great to see them on the front foot with this sort of thing and kind of promoting this in your browser. Hey, here's a tool. If you're putting things out there, please use it. Mm. Yeah, just yeah. a little thought. Yeah, absolutely. There's the IT uh, IT administrators really have to, um, I think, kind of shift their way of thinking about risk because they've they've traditionally been very resistant to change, and it just doesn't reflect the way technology works these days. Like, usually, not patching your your tech is so much more dangerous than patching it and keeping it up to date. So, mm. I look forward to the time when we have to stop having these arguments. <laughs> <laughs> so we now have Patrick Cantars Cantazar. I can't pronounce your last name, Pat. Can you tell it to me, please? <laughs> That's all good. I'm so sorry. He is the founder of DevDiner, which is a website focused on developing with emerging technologies, and it features opinion pieces, interviews, links, and guides for developers. Thank you so much, Pat, for coming on and chatting to us. Thank you so much for having me. It's really lovely of you guys. Oh, well, we're, we're super stoked about emerging tech, and it's lovely to chat to someone who's so knowledgeable about the domain. Um, so, can you tell us a little bit about this newsletter that you run and how you started it up and like how that whole thing came to be? Yeah, well, Dev Diner overall kind of came about because technology is evolving like crazy and developers who are really keen to kind of get into it and build for it and even just enthusiasts who want to know about it, it's mm. kind of a lot to keep up with and it changed constantly. So. I saw that developers that I knew were kind of avoiding it a lot of the time. Like, you know that, you know, oh, hey, there's virtual reality out there. Or, oh, hey, I could be doing augmented reality stuff for artificial intelligence. But a lot of them kind of didn't take that leap into it because it was just, oh, I'm too busy or I've got my nine to five job. And so it's just easier to do this. And other people will do the more fancy stuff that's too hard to work out. And so I started a newsletter, uh, just a weekly newsletter with links. Uh, which is still going today. I think it was just issue 110. I think it was yesterday. Congratulations. Two years. Thank you. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's about two years now. Um, and it just has a bunch of links um, each week, more targeted towards enthusiasts and developers who more want to know, okay, what technology just changed um, in things like virtual reality, augmented reality, uh, wearables, got artificial intelligence, robotics, and Internet of Things, and Maker stuff, like Arduinos and Raspberry Pis. Mm. And it was a lot more based on what changed um, from more of a, where, where, if you wanted to get into it, what would you want to know? 
And so it's a lot of the, this new device came out, or this particular company has a trial where if you sign up, you get a free thing, and they really want developers to try their platform, or even just really simple things like, oh, there's an update to this platform, and if you're using it, you might want to update because it's kind of important. Here's what changed. So it's a lot of keeping everybody up to date and helping everybody seem a lot smarter. Um, they can kind of just pretend that they've been spending the entire week keeping up with stuff when really they just read over really quickly. <laughs> So, Pat, that's a very big remit and it must keep you really busy reading and researching. How did you yourself get interested in technology? Um, I think I've just been interested in technology since I was really young. Um, I have no idea kind of where it came about. I think I just really enjoyed computers when I was younger and tinkering with them and working stuff out and then became a web developer. I worked for a company called Hothouse, which no longer exists. Um, but I left them before they disappeared, and um, I did a lot of web developing um, where I, even as like when I was in high school, I think I really enjoyed web developing and making websites, and then uh, started looking into more how do you connect websites to the real world, and so triggering things using buttons in the real world instead, so you kind of press link in a web page and something goes off, and then from there I started writing a lot about it and kind of it went from there where I started with like the simple button things and now I'm just doing like everything. So you really empower your audience with self-directed learning. Was your education more formal or do you think that you had more from the informal side? Um, I think technology is weird like that because I did have, like I did a Bachelor of Information Technology um, course at UTS, which was a pretty good course um, and learned a ton from that. But all of those courses kind of only teach you the basics, um, so they can kind of then give you an introduction to programming, an introduction to databases, an introduction to bits and pieces. But then, getting any further than that is a lot of self-directed learning. Um, and so, almost everything emerging tech-related, I have kind of just had to learn on my own because I think most people do, unless you go to some of the newer kind of. Mm bits and pieces that are starting to pop up now. So there's such an interesting tension there at the moment with um, tertiary level education. Increasingly, we're hearing from universities that um, they're polling their students and their students are telling them that they want the courses to be more vocationally oriented and to have, yeah. you know, real real skills there. And yet, um, those of us who've been in the industry a long time often reflect on the fact that, well, we learnt all those useful things on the side anyway. <laughs> and actually, the cross-disciplinary thing Things or the rigor of you know developing an aptitude for something was was some of the more helpful things rather than the, the hands-on tools. Mm. Have you have you contemplated this issue very much yourself? Um, I did. Well, I was a bit lucky in that when I went to university, I was in a scholarship course, and part of the scholarship course was that industry companies sponsored the Bachelor of Information Technology course at UTS. And in return, they kind of would mentor the students, come in and give talks, and we'd have two six-month placements. So we'd go out into the actual industry, and so a large part of our course was go out and actually learn things in, like, the real world. And I found that was actually the most beneficial, I think, even if it wasn't so, say, as you're an, if you're an intern, there's still, like, a limit to what you can really do. A lot of the time, um, the third year was a lot more kind of open than the first. Um, but even just having gone out into industry meant that I think the people in my course had a lot more of a, I guess, appreciation for what we'd learn in university, where you'd kind of you'd see where things tied in a bit more. 
Whereas if you just go to uni, do all the stuff, and it's kind of just you sit there and you learn, you don't really get the reasons behind why a lot of the time until you're actually out there. So I think I think that's very that true way, of most lucky. most programming seems to really land for you once you've experienced the pain of real world situations. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like very seriously, right? Like you, you can hear all this theory about why it's good to do things a certain way, but then it's only when you experience like a really enormous code base that's really like complected and ugly that you go, oh, right now I get it. Yeah. So yeah, that practical exactly. like hands-on stuff makes such a big difference. Yeah, it does. Um, so, Pat, I'm curious as to why you think it is that it's um, hard for people or like a little bit of friction for people who are already programming in like web-based technologies to like make the leap to AR and VR and like makerspace. Like, is it just like, you know, too much to do and like not enough headspace or do you think there's something else going on there? Uh, I think it's actually just largely intimidating for mm. people. I think you, even just the way that it's often portrayed in mainstream media, at least, is that, oh, virtual reality is this amazing thing. And so things like virtual reality and even doing little bits and pieces, say putting together a robot with a Raspberry Pi or an Arduino, um, those things, I think, seem a lot more complicated than they really are. So there's often, I think, developers, especially web developers, um, they assume that, well, they know how to make websites and they think that learning beyond that would be a huge leap, whereas really it's kind of, there's a little bit of learning, but it's more just you go in and try it and a lot of the skills are transferable. But mm -hmm. I think people don't really realize that the skills are that transferable or they don't realize that it's actually not that big of a kind of investment to kind of go out and spend, say, a weekend just mm -hmm. trying stuff and working it out. Um, yeah, I, I was thinking that... Um you know, a lot of, as you say, the media portrays like VR and AR is this like incredibly glossy space, but in fact, it's kind of like MySpace. It's like this super hacky, <laughs> dodgy version of the web from 10 years ago. Um, mm -hmm. And I think like maybe it's a branding problem. Maybe we can try and like encourage people to go in and like make it what they think it should be as opposed to thinking it's some like incredibly finished and like, you know, you can't go in and just make something dodgy and, and like a little bit patchy and see, see what happens. Yeah, well, I think, and that's kind of what I like about emerging technology is that all the things that I kind of talk about it on Designer in the newsletter and that I go out and demo and create things for, it is like those areas and why I kind of go out and talk to people and showcase them, especially like say going out to a conference and just demoing technology, um, is that I find when you show it to people and you can say, hey, look, this already exists, um, and you can kind of show the background behind kind of, this is the vague steps that you take to do it that it kind of brings down the whole kind of, oh, this is this mystical, amazing thing, and it's kind of more of a real thing. And then I think it's a lot easier to kind of go, okay, cool, I could do this too, because you kind of see it happening. And then I like to always encourage them and say, look, we actually need developers, because right now, especially, there are like huge issues with things like unconscious bias, where... If, say, we have the virtual reality ecosystem and it's created solely by white males who live in Silicon Valley, then all of these worlds and these things that are getting created are all going to be from one very specific point of view. Mm. So we actually do really need people all around the world to be kind of coming into this from all different backgrounds, web developers, game developers, UX designers. Everybody needs to kind of be into it because the more we have, the better it kind of the end result will be. 
So you mentioned something really significant there that you like to get things in front of people and really do some hands-on demoing with them, with these emerging technologies. Uh, have you developed a bit of a, an internal benchmarking or a, a set of metrics that have to be met before you'll uh, in, invest in, in covering some emergent technologies? Because there is a lot of vaporware out there and, and vapor hardware. Uh, oh, there is. Um, it's. I think it's more, you, there is a level of interest, even just vaguely in like reading articles where you'll kind of, if it's a technology which is really kind of, especially if it's like a Kickstarter or... Um, an Indiegogo campaign and stuff, then I usually wait a little bit mm. um, more for making sure that whatever I'm demoing is actually accessible to people. So there are tons of Arduino-like devices that aren't actually Arduino where they're trying to make a new platform or things like that. And I'll typically wait for those before kind of going out, especially things like new smartwatches mm. or um, really newer, obscure virtual reality headsets and things. I kind of will wait a bit before demoing those and try and find things where, at the very least, at the end of the demo, if I can say, hey, go here to buy an Arduino, or hey, go here, and you could get a cheap VR headset, that sort of thing. I think it's it's largely that. So I think it's more, the benchmark is, can people actually go out and get it? And is there a cheap enough way for them to kind of enter the space? So rather than going and saying, hey, everybody, you have to go buy a HTC Vive with a two three thousand dollar computer before you can do any of this it's mm. much easier to say hey all the stuff i taught you you can go out and get a google cardboard for 20 bucks and just start working on it so yeah and on the line we're in the middle of an interview with patrick patrick Catanzariti. patrick i'm determined to get your name right <laughs> by the end you of the show right. that was perfect. excellent excellent look um <laughs> look pat has been sharing some of his experiences um getting engaged with tech and then helping spread the good word particularly on emerging technologies Pat, you've also had a lot of experience with um, more formal methods of educating people about tech with um, writing help books and things. I've seen that you've written something for O'Reilly. Was that was that a while ago? I think so. I think, well, it wasn't too long ago, but I think time is speeding really quickly that it probably was. Um, I think it was maybe two, three years ago. Um, it was on um, the Internet of Things programming with JavaScript. So Fantastic. People, this is how you can connect up your websites to trigger Arduinos and Raspberry Pi things. Actually, I don't think there was any Raspberry Pi in it. It's actually but nice. It like you create a dashboard. Ah. You kind of see sort of like the temperature in your room or light or that sort of thing, which was pretty fun. Yeah, that makes sense. There's been so much um, interest in what people can do to make their homes intelligent. And it's been fun watching people um, get enthusiastic and, and actually enter the, that home space. I'm really excited to see people like hacking their homes as well, like not just buying uh, yeah. fully fleshed out products like Google Home or Nest, but like actually imagining what they want to automate or what they want to measure and then building it out for themselves. I think the cutest problem solving I've, I've seen has been around children and pets because I guess there's always problems around trying to manage your space and make it comfortable for people with different needs and that homes mm -hmm. are, are very much discovered for uh, designed for the adult experience. So that's been cool. I was also just excited to hear that O'Reilly books were still a thing because I must say it's been a while <laughs> since I've cracked one. But are you finding that these days people are more interested in, in the newsletter sort of size of format or real life events or is there interest in ebooks? I think it's a mix. Um, but at the moment, from what I've seen, largely when I create content is a lot of what I do on Dev Diner is just text articles. Um, but 
I'm seeing a lot of people kind of constantly asking me, oh, why didn't you make a video? Um, so I think video is actually becoming the main way people want to consume all this stuff. So I think it's just you, we're getting used to the fact that if you go on Facebook and you scroll down, you see videos. And if you are, like, just casually surfing the Internet, most of the time you go on YouTube and things like that. So I think videos just seems to be the thing that people just kind of really, really want just to watch something and be told things. Um, ebooks are still around, and I hope they continue because I kind of personally prefer ebooks. I prefer being able to kind of just read through a list of steps and be able to constantly check where I'm up to rather than have to like pause and play a video. So, yeah, when I'm developing, but, yeah. that's definitely a preference for me. I like I find the size of them right as well for me. Like I don't necessarily want to crack a big tome, but I sometimes need mm-hmm. something that's more in depth than like what you get from a blog post. So that it seems to like kind of fit my needs as well. Yeah. Um, I believe you are actually working on an ebook at the moment. Pat, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Sure. Um, yeah, I'm working on it's all about making virtual assistants and chatbots style interfaces uh, with a service called API.ai, which was recently bought by Google as kind of the way that they are officially requesting people make apps for the Google Home device and the Google Assistant on your Android phone. And so I'm putting it together as basically a online course where it's going to be both um, an ebook format where it would be basically going online and reading articles that are kind of step-by-step with screenshots. This is how you kind of put together a virtual assistant, um, show it how to, um, you train it with different things. So you can train it with something called an intent to say, hey, learn about kind of, if anybody talks about message, say message Fred when I get home or something like that. Um, it will train it to kind of know how to pass that sentence and then be able to respond in some way or another. And so it's a really simple course. I'm hoping to make it just like the beginner, bare level, kind of don't worry or stress out, just kind of go through this course. It'll kind of explain the basics to you. And then in the end, um, both with ebook content and if people really want video, I'm going to have videos, screencasts for each of the lessons as well to kind of get it for both people, whichever way they prefer to read and learn. Um, and then at the end, they can have their own virtual assistant. So my hope is that people aren't going to follow along and just create the exact same thing I make. I kind of am trying to encourage the course to kind of find their own interest in what sort of virtual kind of being they'd like to create that would help people or help them in something. Um, and then they'll be able to use it on uh, the web. So they can create it as a web page. Um, they'll be able to talk to it on Facebook Messenger. They can talk to it on Google Home or the Amazon Echo. Um, and a range of different things, and it's kind of just a, a good kind of bare bones. Here's like everything you want to know to kind of get dip your toe in the water and try it out. Wow, um, chatbots are so hot right now, and I must say I've, I've been hands off in, in uh, developing for a little while now, and been working more as you know product manager, business analyst, that sort of thing. This is mm-hmm. one thing that makes me want to get my hands wet again. This is uh-huh. just so tremendous. Um, and the idea that you might have kids out there putting up a chatbot that, that they've built instead of their, their you know, MySpace page <laughs> is just blowing my little mind. That's so great, though. I'm I'm really excited to hear that you are working on a sort of platform and a vendor agnostic way of learning. Because when I, I was actually researching this for a design sprint maybe half a year ago, and there are a lot of resources out there that are very vendor specific or very platform specific, and mm-hmm. it's not necessarily great to learn how to like make a chatbot on platform, you know, bot bot or whatever it is. I, that's yep. not even a thing. But you know, I, I'm I'm um, 
And I, I also think that um, it's important to think about the heuristics of what a chatbot could and should be like beyond the platform constraints. Um, yeah. You know, because like we don't necessarily think that we're going to be writing chatbots for Facebook forever, but like we might want to at some point have like voice inflection or have like more of a human delivery or have like more capacity to, you know, make them human or interesting um, beyond like the pure text formatting. So. Um, so, so if someone was interested in checking out this course, Pat, how would they find out about it? Well, at the moment, uh, I've got a registration of interest. So I've got a page on the DevDiner website. Um, there's a short code, which may be hard for people to like, take down, but it is um, devd dot in forward slash API AI course. Uh, if that is like too much of a mouthful and you haven't written it down, um, on the DevDiner website at devdiner.com. Uh, on the right-hand side, there's a button um, that just says, so many virtual assistants, why not make your own? Register your interest. And basically, I've got a form there where people can tell me the sort of things that they would like to do with their virtual assistant as well, because I'm trying to get people involved early um, so that I can try and cover whatever people have got in their minds um, or as much as I can in a beginner course. Um, and then everybody who registers their interest and kind of gives a bit of their ideas on what they'd like to learn, uh, I'm giving a 20% discount. So they'll get sent a coupon code when it comes out, and they get to be the first ones to kind of jump in and try it out. Hey, love a beta tester discount. That's so amazing. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I think we can tweet those links as well later. So if you follow the bite oh, yeah. into it, um, hashtag and Twitter alias, you'll be able to see those links as well. But DevDiner is a good place, I think, just to go and find all the things if you can't remember the specific links that we talk about. So before we let you go, Pat, we uh, we know that you were just at Web Direction's first AI conference recently. Yeah. And you presented a chatbot there called JohnBot. Now, who is JohnBot? Uh -huh. Uh, John Butt is uh, John Alsop, the one of the founders <laughs> of Web Directions, uh, personified into a robot. Um, it was more just trying to, the whole idea of the chatbot was, how can we make a chatbot which could help guide people at the conference to do the things which a lot of the time people would just go up to a volunteer um, to ask, so things like, what's on next, uh, where are the bathrooms, where's coffee, um, that sort of thing. And so put together that chatbot. Um, using the same sort of thing as my course, where it's all built using the API.ai um, setup. And it just had a website uh, where they could kind of go online, even on their phone, um, ask it a question, and it would hopefully, if I coded it properly, have an answer, uh, which was pretty fun. And yeah, it was called John Butt just because I was like, what else can we call it? And then I was like, wouldn't it be fun if it was John also? Yeah, we had a look at an early version of that, and um, it was exceedingly <laughs> polite. And I think that that's <laughs> that seems appropriate. I saw yeah, Dan's eyes lit up when you said sometime. that it could show you where the coffee is and when you can get it. So I think there's you've already yeah. found a pain point. That's Absolutely, for all conferences and coffee, like mm. you know what you're doing. <laughs> so, Pat, have you ever seen people take almost a wiki approach to chatbots and and sort of contribute their own their own suggestions? Um, I haven't, but it's a good idea. Uh, at the moment, one of the things I like about API AI is that people can sort of unknowingly do so, um, at least in how they interact with it. So uh, when I made the JohnBot, um, basically whenever people would speak to the JohnBot, uh, a big part of the API AI platform is it remembers what people have asked it, 
And if it's got a bunch of things where it kind of was offline and it didn't know anything about it, um, it would either try to answer it if it was something like similar-ish that it thinks they might have meant, or it'll kind of just say, I'm sorry, I have no idea what you just meant. Um, but then it'll always store those things that it didn't know in a training section, so I can go in later, see what it, people have been asking it, and kind of be able to adjust it and teach ah, it perfect. in that way. Yeah, like so, some zero in hits in a search log. Hmm. Yeah, so it, it's very much like crowdsourcing knowledge where you kind of, even if you sat down and tried to make a chatbot and list everything that people ever ask it, there's always going to be something that you miss. Like even small things like, say, if you wanted to find the coffee, I assumed that people would just be like, where's the coffee or what's the deal with coffee or things like that. (laughs) They would just go to the chatbot and say the word coffee. And the chatbot kind of knew and kind of gave them directions to coffee, but it still kind of came back to me and said, what is this singular word that they're saying to me? So Mm. there's a lot of that where people will surprise you in how they'll speak of things. Did you do any user testing with John just to make sure that some of the responses were were (laughs) John-like? I should have. (laughs) (laughs) In news, we have some Dropbox developments. Yes, Dropbox has just recently rolled out a brand new logo and design, uh, redesign. And I, I have a lot of questions about it. Well, following <laughs> off on the success of all of those other co- mm. great big tech companies that have done some great, fantastic new redesigns like Instagram and yeah. uh, all the rest. Anyway, please go. Well, right. Like there is, there is a confusing sort of trend that I think is fair to observe, which is that a lot of these big tech companies seem to do this like second go at their branding and the design and they seem to really undercut themselves, right? Like it's like they've kind of gotten confused about what they were doing and who they were doing it for and they're like, ooh, we just want to be hip and cool. And, and that's pretty much my <laughs> criticism of, of this Dropbox redesign is they've got this whole like video and it's trippy and it's all these colors and they've got <laughs> so many fonts going on. Oh. And, and like, look, to be fair, I watched the video and I was like, yeah, that's exciting. Now, what does that have to do with Dropbox? Mm. Like I literally cannot make the leap between a service, which is like a cloud server for your files and like this, you know, be sexy, cool, entertainment, design, fun, creativity, energy. Like, like for me, it's, it's a real mismatch. Like there's a cognitive dissonance going on. And because the best things about Dropbox are simplicity, you know, like really clear UX functionality, like the mm. speed of file transfer but, and the ease of then sharing those files with other people. It's it, it's Soviet, you know, it's mm, it feels blocky and, yeah, and safe. It's Bauhaus almost. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But a very limited number of people are going to find that sexy and sexy is what marketing wants. So how mm. do you sexify something that is inherently not sexy? But, you mm. know, something that's that's safe, you could have gone with all the all the secure feelings that, that something that's solid as a rock in Implies. I think instead they've been a bit distracted by the fact that every time I get a band demo these days, it's shared in a Dropbox file. And then they've obviously done their market research and said, well, oh, cool a people. lot of creative people needed a big file exchange place mm. and we are that. Therefore, our audience is creatives. Therefore, our marketing needs to be like yeah. this. But yeah, I think it's it, it really for me is that confusion between... Um, like how people are using the platform and how the platform should be perceived. Yes. Yeah, I really think it's a bit of a misstep for them. Yeah. Um, you, you want it to be reliable, Grandma. I, I do. Look, I, I'm going to be security? honest. Security, like, I want, locked I want, up. It's a bank. 
Yeah, it's a bank. I want I want to feel confident that it's secure, that it's um, the servers are unimpeachable. I want to feel confident that there's no like privacy issues. And I also want to, I mean, one thing I know that Dropbox, and you know, like to be fair, this is really like not very kind to Dropbox <laughs> as a company, but I know people who've worked on the accessibility team there. They've done a ton of work on making their web UI really accessible and keyboard accessible. And like, you know, they've done all of this really, really excellent work on the app side, which is why I'm so confused by what this what these marketing decisions are but yeah. but you know maybe maybe they're just trying to break into a new market and they know that people who are already sold don't really care maybe there's just like there's just this like this is a push to try and like just break new markets i'm i'm really not sure but yeah it, it certainly didn't it's, speak it's to me it's funny too because they are a company that is in the enterprise market they have an enterprise platform mm. and a lot of people use them now so it's it's an odd decision i, I, I don't know it just feels like they're, they're going they're going for a market that they already have if 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 I were Dropbox the people who I have you know in conversation and in my work life the people who are resistant to Dropbox are you know the people who are generally resistant to technology and and you know cloud-based systems in general mm-hmm. um, the the uh, the uh, young cool people who are sharing their file demos and and you know their art pieces and architecture designs and stuff they're already using Dropbox because it is the best system that you've got for this kind of thing. Yeah. Um. So I I think if they're trying to carve out a market share, they're doing it in the wrong direction. Mm. Talking about moving in the wrong direction. Oh. oh. So there was an article Sorry, published on Bloomberg Technology today, which I thought was interesting because it's an external take on the NBN story for Australia. Uh, It's entitled, Australia has slower internet than Kenya, Russia and Hungary. And it goes on to detail a little bit of the story. So if you haven't been up to date with what's been happening with the NBN in Australia, it's quite a good summary of what's happened. It talks about the um, Australia $49 billion spend on the network to date and that it's the biggest ever infrastructure investment that's turned into a political football. Mm. And it really pulls out how um, the infrastructure has become politicised and how that has hampered our, our yeah, our development mm. of the NBN. And it's really holding up Australia as a bad example of how to do this sort of big, you know, in- national transformation project, infrastructure project. It's such... It's such a, a tough read. Um, it talks about, you know, the high hopes for it, how it was conceived, how these ambitions for, you know, optic fibre the whole way through, how these have gradually been eroded. Um, and also about some of the advice they've had from telecommunications analysts around the world when they were starting this project about what made sense and what didn't. Um, in some ways, they do talk about how with Australia's geography, our widely dispersed population, our massive land mass, that we were always going to have these challenges. And we knew this, but this is why it was thought that it should be a government project. Otherwise, there would always be the haves and have nots. Mm -hmm. Um, With the crazy property prices in Australia, it's a real missed opportunity to decentralise the ability of workers to work from wherever. And that is one of those things that I just think has massive implications for our society. 
and isn't spoken about that much when we talk about the problems mm-hmm. of the NBN. It's the the failed sunken promise of telecommunications, right? It's like the thing that we all said 20 years ago, oh, at some point we're going to live in these beautiful rural communities and we're going to just zap our faces into work and, you know, we can do most of our work remotely. And that really feels like a promise that's kind of fallen on its face. And, and particularly, I mean, I know I Skype a lot of family in the States and, you know, it's just so frustrating every time you get on and seeing like the internet buffering and seeing the terrible like artifacting of the the imagery and just going oh can you please just work um, mm. and and that's that's just for personal use that's not even for technological or business use oh, people trying to access their online education these days and sit exams and things I heard a story just this week from another triple R broadcaster saying that you know their partner had been trying to sit an exam and knew that they couldn't rely on the home NBN connection because they've got a certain amount of time to complete this within Mm. and if it drops out during that time they're in trouble Mm. so this is just frustrating i think the the thing that worries me most about this article in particular is that it's now becoming clear outside of australia just how much of a fist australia has made of this system and it could have longer-term implications for Australia trying to do business overseas. Well, let's just talk about the amount of venture capital we have in this country and how absolutely like weak it is compared to almost every other startup ecosystem that's trying to do like information technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think any venture capitalist sitting in San Francisco right now reading this article is going to feel encouraged to come out here and like spend their hard earned? Like, mm, come on. It's, absolutely. It's like the thing that I found really hardest that like just really just made me go, oh, is looking at those numbers going, oh, so Turnbull thought he would be able to bring the budget down to 29 billion by reducing it from, you know, fiber to the node and then copper to the house. And in fact, his actual bill is going to come out higher than the original, like, full fiber rollout. Mm. And, like, who knows if that would have hit budget. We know that, like, you know, it's very hard to actually get those things right. But I just, I find it so bamboozling how these big infrastructure, like, projects simply cannot stick to budget. I will call out um, a problematic part of the article, and it's probably because it is from Bloomberg that they have concluded that lots of these problems could have been avoided if it had been a private run solution. And mm. yet mm. Um, and yet they do say that price gouging and those sort of competing demands from corporations have been part of the problem. Yep. So I think they, they contradict themselves a little bit there, but... Yeah, we, we know that there were viable plans for what the NBN project could look like right at the beginning. Mm. All the experts weighed in, the ACCC weighed in. You know, there were there were proper consumer um, advocates uh, looking at the plans as well as government people saying this is, you know, assault, you know public servants with expertise, you know, telecommunication companies all weighing in. There was consensus, but there was not political will. Yeah. And this is where we've fallen over. <laughs> It's um, Look, it's worth a read. Bloomberg Technology, Australia has slower internet than Kenya, Russia and Hungary is the article. Just shed a tear for the dream. Is it it fixable? Will we ever? No. Well, look, in the article it did say that, you know, like we know the copper networks have an incredibly short lifespan and it's very likely that we're going to end up having to replace them with fiber at some point. So, you know, billions of dollars and lots of frustration later, possibly we'll we'll start to see that like equivalency of bandwidth around Mm. the country. But when homeowners start putting together or shelling out the money to get that last 50 meters from 
on the node to the house and that kind of thing? Or? That will already happen, but mm. people will be frustrated with their Netflix things, sure. But it's the businesses that is the real concern, you mm. know, and, and those businesses, you know, that sort of cost could have subsidised a lot of the other costs. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, moving on from MBM, which we do try and think about sparingly on this show. Uh, an opportunity out there this week. The latest edition of The Big Issue has a cover feature on Rise of the Robots. How will you survive the AI revolution? It's been co-authored by Dr. Kate Devlin, who's a British computer scientist specialising in artificial intelligence and human-computer interaction, and Australia's own Professor Toby Walsh, who's Australia's preeminent voice on AI. He's um, a professor, you know, a lecturer. He's also part of CSIRO's Data61 group. Group, and he's uh, he's had a book out recently. It's called It's Alive, Artificial Intelligence from the Logic Piano to Killer Robots. And I can highly recommend that book. It's, um, it's excellent. But the big issue is a publication that's for a great cause. Um, people experiencing homelessness sell this around the city for $7. Um, definitely worth a read. Also for the Blade Runner review. So check that Ooh, out. I'm going tomorrow night. Can't <laughs> oh, don't tell me. What did it, don't, I, I want to see it myself. Yep. We want to Good. know. We Look, do. a big thank you to our guests this evening, Patrick Catanzariti uh, from Dev Diner, and thanks to our audience. Thanks, everyone, for listening this evening. We've been biting into it, and we'll be back next Wednesday evening. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.